before we come to God's word, let's pray. Father, thank you for allowing us to come and to sit under your word. We know, Lord, that we cannot understand what your word means unless you explain it to us. And so we invite you, Lord, through your Holy Spirit to fill us with understanding that we might be obedient to what your word has to teach us today. In your name, Jesus, we do pray. Amen. Last summer, Pastor Brent led a, uh, a three-week series on the Christian mind in which he showed from God's word that God designed us to think as well as to feel and to experience and to believe. We worship God with our minds and with our hearts. Stressing one over the other just leads to imbalance. So we were urged to engage our intellects even as we experience the wonder of God's word and his presence within us through the Holy Spirit. It is God who gives us faith to believe, provides understanding of his word, and fills us with the capacity to follow Jesus. Over the next four weeks, we will explore the amazing place of hope in the Christian life. Hope that we comprehend with our minds and experience with our hearts. The purpose of this series is for each of us to grasp the biblical reality of hope that is found only in Christ. As we will soon discover, this hope is for all creation. As Paul wrote in Colossians 1.20, it is God's divine and loving plan to reconcile all things to himself through Christ. This plan is not only for us as his people, but his plan ripples outward to embrace and unite all creation in Christ. In this four-part series, we want to counter and correct the many false hopes from our culture, including any confusion we may have adopted as ourselves, as believers, without knowing it. If there is one thing the events of these times have shown us, it is that all people from every culture and language, whether or not they follow Christ, all humanity needs and longs for hope. The hope we all crave begins with a promise, a promise which forms the foundation for our hope. But before we turn to this promise, which is described for us in Romans 8, 18-25, I want to first define hope and its importance, then introduce you to various ways people in our society try to find hope, and then conclude with God's promise of hope for us. Now, since this is our first message, my introduction will be longer than you'd normally expect before we arrive at our text. And the reason is, is that we have to use our minds and God's spirit to analyze our own culture and society just as we do to analyze the scriptures in order to see what exactly our society teaches. And in this case, what it teaches about hope. If you were asked to explain what the word hope means to somebody, what would you say? What is the meaning of hope? If you venture 
into definitions of hope, you'll find there are various different perspectives on what the word means. In our culture, the word has often been reduced to mean wishful thinking, where hope is another way of saying wish or desire. Defined in this way, hope becomes a future desire that may or may not come true. So, I hope or I wish that I get a bicycle for my birthday. I hope that the bus comes on time today. I hope that things will get better. These are not bad or wrong desires, but their fulfillment is a matter of chance and circumstance. So if you're feeling really good today, brimming with confidence, then hope seems more attainable. If you're having a bad day, feeling downcast or, or worse, depressed, then hope descends into the category of a wish that probably won't come true, so why bother with hope? This is especially true if you've recently experienced a series of disappointments and hope seems rather far away. When we open God's word, we find a different definition of hope. We see that hope is not dependent on our feelings, circumstances, or chance. Theological hope, in contrast to worldly hope, is far from the idea of wishful thinking because it rests squarely upon God himself. Now, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, wrote this about hope. Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. End quote. So hope biblically defined expresses a confidence that God will do what he says he will do. That's the essence of a promise. Theological hope is built on God who promises, as it says in Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hope is God's gift of himself to us. Christian hope does not rely on what we do, nor does it rely on our circumstances or the flipping of a coin. Our hope is invested in a person. Now, whether you define hope as a wish or you define hope as a confident assurance in God and his promises, the presence of hope is essential for human existence. It doesn't matter where you travel in our world. People everywhere need hope because, and this is important, unrestrained hopelessness is a slippery pathway that leads down to pain and ultimately to self-destruction. Hope is of such importance that the early church fathers identified hopelessness as one of the deadly sins. All disobedience and rebellion against God leads to death. But there is a category of sins that stand out, which are called the deadly sins. Among these sins is one identified as hopelessness. We often do not think of hopelessness as a sin against God. 
After all, isn't a, a lack of hope a normal human response to disappointments, loss of life, grief, or random circumstances of life often beyond our control? Isn't hopelessness just a feeling? In fact, right now, you may be struggling with a sense of no hope. You may even be downcast or depressed. I think we all can identify with the sense of no hope because we all struggle with these types of feelings and attitudes. I also realize that recognizing profound hopelessness as a sin can just make matters worse. You may be thinking, well, that's, um, that's really great. Not only am I feeling bad because I lack hope, but I'm also sinning against God. Well, thanks a lot. Well, that is not quite what we're talking about today. Hopelessness is much more than a feeling or being depressed. The word acedia was adopted by the early theologians to refer to the sin of hopelessness. In today's use, it means to give up. It is the expressed attitude which says, I don't care anymore, or I give up, what's the point? Or even, I quit, it's just not worth it anymore. Whether acedia appears in your ministry, in your work, in your relationships, or in yourself, this attitude of hopelessness is dangerous and destructive. When this way of thinking takes root in your heart, you tumble downward into darkness and gloom where despair is lurking and waiting for you. The sin of hopelessness and despair goes much deeper than disappointment or experiencing a difficult time. Now, in the fourth century, there was a Christian monk and theologian named John Cassian, and he said this, Acedia, or the sin of hopelessness, is a disgust with everything in life. It is a paralysis of the spirit combined with restlessness and indecision. Acedia is, in fact, one of the great spiritual diseases of our time. Notice that Cassian described this hopelessness as a spiritual disease of his time. Well, it has not gone away, my friends. Hopelessness is still a disease of our time. The danger of hopelessness is that it pulls and drives us away from the one who promises hope. Acedia is sinful precisely because it is selfish. It is an attitude that questions God's promises and questions his desires and ability to restore our minds and our hearts to rescue us and to redeem us. In its extreme, most dangerous form, hopelessness says, I quit God. I'm giving up on Christ. Make no mistake, hopelessness is both serious and life-threatening. So, since hope is so vital, so essential to human experience, and to our very health, we need to ask the question, what brings people hope? Deep down, where do people in our society find hope? Well, let's first look at how hope is described and offered by the world, and then later, at the end, we'll look at uh, how God explains and offers hope. Now, in our society, in a general kind of broad analysis, there are two basic ways 
that hope is often described and presented. As we go along, I think you'll be able to recognize their presence in our society. And the first one is called the myth of progress, or evolutionary optimism. Now, at the outset, I want to acknowledge that I'm indebted to N.T. Wright's book, Surprised by Hope, where he introduced and talks about these ideas and concepts. Now, the two explanations that society offers for hope, apart from God, this first one, the myth of progress, will likely be the most familiar to you. If you listen carefully, you hear this expressed often in our society. Simply stated, the myth of progress is the belief and hope that our world is getting better and better. And one day we will reach a state of utopia in which we will solve all of our problems. A time will come when there will be no more poverty, no more racism, no war. There will be universal justice, health, peace, and the list goes on. Now, N.T. Wright in his book, he notes this. The myth of progress has deep roots in contemporary Western culture, and some of these roots are Christian. The idea that the human project, and indeed the cosmic project, could and would continue to grow and develop, producing unlimited human improvement and marching toward a utopia goes back to the Renaissance and was given its decisive push by the 18th century European Enlightenment. In other words, the hope of progress is perfect to perfection is not a new idea. And this has been underpinned in the last century by the biological theory of evolution which has become applied to all areas of life, from science to technology, politics, and commerce. Our society is built around this ideology of progress. New is always better than the old. Much of our economy is based upon the idea of progress and improvement. Now, there's much more to say about the myth of progress. But after two world wars, worldwide poverty, refugees, diseases, death, and the nightly news, these all show us that the human progress toward perfect society is simply not working. Modern, postmodern cynicism, while rejecting this virtue, this avenue of hope, nonetheless still needs to find hope somewhere. One of the problems with the myth of progress or evolutionary optimism is the presence and reality of evil. The myth of progress is unable to stop evil or change the human heart. It cannot address all the injustice of the past, even as it cannot prevent it today. There's little assurance that if we keep improving, we will necessarily arrive at a perfect society. This is where hope becomes wishful thinking. The myth of progress is powerful in our society, and often we just assume that life is meant to get better. You may ask, well, isn't progress good and desirable? Shouldn't we strive to make life better? Well, of course we should. There are many, many worthy pursuits, and these can run parallel to Christian hope. However, the myth of progress has a different origin and a different destination than Christian hope. Just like morning traffic, cars start from different places and end up in different destinations, but they use the same highways. 
So it is expected that Christian hope and the hope in the myth of progress temporarily overlap along the highways of life. But the results are quite different. The belief that health, wealth, prosperity, and education with scientific and technological advancements will spread around the world and build the perfect human society is in fact a parody of the kingdom of God. Instead of the kingdom of God emerging as a gift, the myth of progress sees the kingdoms of this world becoming unified and united through human effort, moving us toward a perfect society apart from God. And it doesn't work. It produces a false and fading hope. However, there is a second option for hope that is offered by our society and our world. And it is not to make the world better, but rather it is to escape the world and find utopia beyond creation. This is called the myth of the spirit. See if you can recognize its presence in our society and at times its appearance in some way people view Christian hope. The myth of the spirit or the myth of the escape of the spirit sounds like this. Hope rests ultimately in finding the real you by embracing the inner reality of who you truly are. It is about unleashing the true self, which will only happen when your spirit or soul is freed from the body. Now, this view of life can be traced way back to Greek philosophy, to a philosopher named Plato, who taught that the present world is an illusion like flickering shadows in a cave. The goal of life is to go beyond illusion and find true reality, which is beyond creation. Plato, Hinduism, Buddhism teach that people are designed for something much more than space, matter, and time, more than this world. This view of hope teaches that people long for a world of pure spirit, free from death, which means free from the physical body. It is the idea that our true self is trapped in our bodies and that there is hope that the spirit will one day escape and be released from the physical body. Now, I admit this must sound strange to some of you, perhaps even irrelevant, but this sort of idea can creep into Christian hope. It can appear when people say, look, all that matters is that one day I will escape this world of pain, suffering, decay, and death and be with God in heaven forever where I will live forever as a spiritual being in the heavens. Now, this view tends to consider God's creation as irrelevant, unimportant, and something that will be judged and destroyed. Even Peter, writing in, in uh, 2 Peter 3.10, said, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it, on it will be exposed. Some of you tempted to think that if God is going to do this to his creation, then creation is not really that important. However, Peter goes on to conclude in verse 13, but according to his, that is God's promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God's plan includes new creation. So far from escaping creation and freeing the spirit from the confines of the body, the hope of the kingdom of God is the restoration and perfection 
of all physical creation. If it were not so, then Jesus would have no need for a resurrected body. Now, the Bible provides a corrective to both the myth of progress and the myth of the escape of the soul. Following either myth leads ultimately to hopelessness. Hopelessness in a world that we hope will get better and doesn't, or hopelessness as we abandon this world for a fantasy of escape from creation. The wonderful news is that there is hope, and it is hope that is based on God's promise. Now, you may not realize this, but the early Christians did not believe this world was going to become progressively better until perfect under human effort or even under God's hand. They accepted that God would do something new and fresh. They accepted that God would do something beyond our imagination. They also believed that the world was not growing worse, nor did they hope to escape it. Instead, and this is important, instead the early disciples believed in the certain hope that God would do for the entire universe what he had done for Jesus at Easter. Resurrection. New life. The Christian hope is not limited to our ultimate salvation, as amazing and as wonderful as it is. The hope God gives us is even more grand, more complete and interconnected than we often realize. And this is seen in Romans 18, 8, 18-25, where Paul unfolds the wonder of the promise of God's hope providing a different picture of hope that is offered than our world. And it begins with a perspective on suffering. It says in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul introduces a certain perspective about our current situation, whether we have hope or not. Hope, by definition, looks forward. And Paul emphasizes this perspective as he considers current suffering. The word he uses for comparing means a scale with suffering placed on one side and glory on the other. Future glory to be revealed in us, in Christ, far outweighs any suffering as we experience in this life, and tips the balance so far towards the joy of the Lord that there's really no comparison. This is the beginning of Christian hope, founded within God's promise and plan, which, by the way, does not depend on how you feel. Remember, hopelessness is essentially about not trusting that God will do what he says he will do. So Paul then moves from this verse of 18 moves from suffering into verses 19 to 23, where he describes, describes the subject of hope, which for some of us may be a little unexpected. For he says this in verse 19, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Paul examines the future, not just from the perspective of people who are redeemed, but he enlarges our view to include all the rest of creation. Many of our English translations retain the Greek emphasis, which says the creation. Not just for creation waits, but the creation. 
It's a specific, detailed, expanded view of all creation. And what happens? Well, creation, Paul says, is waiting eagerly, longing for something. Literally, verse 19 in the Greek says, the eager expectation of the creation awaits eagerly the revelation of the sons of God. Eager longing means to be anxious and excited in anticipation of what is longed for. So what does creation wait for? It waits for us. The hope of creation is bound together in some mystery with the hope that we have as God's people. This has been God's plan all along. So what happened to creation? Well, Paul continues in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Variously translated as futility or frustration, the aim of the word is really aimlessness or the inability to reach a goal or achieve results. The Greek word can be translated as vanity, which is the same word used in Ecclesiastes, where we know the familiar refrain, vanity of vanity, or what's the point, which sounds strangely like our definition of hopelessness. Here in verse 20, it describes the disappointing character of present creation, which does not even come close to reaching its potential. And it happened to creation unwillingly. Not only is creation subjected to frustration, but it suffers unwillingly. It wasn't its choice. This imposed frustration is our fault. Adam and Eve were custodians and stewards over creation, and when they rebelled against God, all creation suffered. However, God's promise and plan permitted creation to suffer for the purpose of hope. Ultimately, it's God who subjected creation to this. In this way, Paul can write that God, who subjected creation to frustration under the hands of Adam and Eve, did so for the purpose of hope a hope that is unimaginably beautiful and glorious, which Paul now describes for us in verse 21, where he says that the in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The hope is that all creation will be set free from bondage and corruption. Currently, creation is enslaved to corruption, by which Paul means decay and death. One day, it will be freed from this bondage, which is somehow connected with our freedom. Again, this connection between creation and the people of God. In essence, God's amazing good creation, because he's created it good, was designed and intended for much more than what we see today. Therefore, creation longs to share the glorious freedom of the children of God. Our sin subjected creation to death. Christ's redemption of people subjects creation to life, something for which creation longs and waits for with eager anticipation. F.F. F. Bruce, in his uh, commentary of Romans, says it this way, At present, as old Koheleth, that is the preacher of Ecclesiastes, proclaimed, vanity of vanity is writ large over all things. This state of frustration and bondage is only temporary. 
Just as a man at present falls short of the glory of God, so creation as a whole cannot attain the full end for which she was brought into being. Like man, creation must be redeemed because like man, creation has been subject to a fall. End quote. And so Paul continues with the idea of creation. And he says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. You've noticed along that Paul has personified creation, making it sound like it's a person. Groaning in pain looks back to the bondage of suffering and death, whereas the pains of childbirth look forward to, look forward to the age of God's renewal. So humanity and the rest of creation stand together intertwined, awaiting the glorious redemption and renewal promised by God. And now, people turn, now Paul turns towards people in verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, Paul's reference to the first fruits takes us back to the Old Testament, where the Israelites were expected to bring the first fruits of harvest to the Lord as an act of worship and as an act of trust in his ongoing provision. Here, Paul speaks of believers receiving the first gift of the Holy Spirit given at the very start of life as a believer in Christ. It is a pledge by God that he will complete the salvation he began when he adopted us as children through faith in Jesus. The fulfilled promise of redemption will be future with our resurrected bodies. As we wait, along with creation, we groan inwardly, waiting for that day when our adoption will be completed. And here's where God's promise of full adoption lifts our eyes and hearts away from our current conditions and feelings to anticipate with longing all that God promises us. This is where hope emerges as a beacon drawing us towards Christ. Creation awaits eagerly to be set free, and so do we. We also wait for this adoption as true sons and daughters of our Father who is in heaven. This full and complete attainment will only be realized at the resurrection of our bodies. Notice the hope that God offers is not an escape from creation, but a completion and perfection of all that God makes new, including our bodies. So now, we come with Paul, and we arrive at our last verse about the promise of hope, in verses 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For he who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. In these final two verses, notice that Paul mentions hope five times. I guess hope is important. In this hope, the very beginning of the verse, in this hope refers to the beginning of your salvation when by faith you submitted yourself to Christ as you believed the gospel of Christ. That is, his incarnation, 
death, and resurrection. In this hope, we were, past tense, saved. Since God's plan is not yet completed, but remains in the process of fulfillment, we do not yet see or receive all that he promises. The quiet yet firmly unyielding trust in God doing what he says he will do is the Christian hope. The day will come when we will no longer need hope because we will see him who redeemed us face to face. And on that day, hope will melt away to reveal the glorious completed plan of God, not just for us, but for all creation. What a glorious day that will be. Paul finishes by urging us to wait patiently for the promise that God has described as hope. The Christian hope rests upon the promise of God, which has already begun in Christ. And N.T. Wright adds this, What creation needs is neither abandonment nor evolution, but rather redemption and renewal. And this is both promised and guaranteed by the res resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This is what the whole world is waiting for. The reality of hope in God's promise formed the very first post-resurrection public proclamation of the gospel by Peter. For Peter said in Acts 2, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Wherever or whenever you are listening, this promise of life and the accompanying hope of God can be yours, if it is not already. God is willing to receive your repentance, which involves confession of the ways you've hurt God through your disobedience and rebellion against his presence and the way that you've rebelled against his care for you. It means turning away from yourself and in humility submitting and offering your life to God by receiving the gift of his, forgiven, his forgiveness given through Jesus Christ. This is why it's called the good news. Because he hears and does not turn away. He invites you to take these steps to bow before him and receive from him forgiveness, the gift of his spirit, adoption as his child, which is the promise of hope. God's promise and plan has always been to rescue and redeem all of creation and unite all things in Christ, as it says in the first chapter of Ephesians, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. All of God's creation will be freed and restored afresh in Christ to the glory of God. Now, at the beginning of our message today, regarding Christian hope, we highlighted the danger of hopelessness. Now, after examining aspects of the wondrous depth of God's promise of restoration and transformation of humanity and all the rest of creation, we can conclude with a way to approach hopelessness. It is called infused hope. Infused hope 
is a pathway in which hope pervades our hearts and minds. To infuse also means to inspire or fill with a certain quality. It can be seen when you place a tea bag in a cup of hot water. What happens? The flavor and aroma of the tea infiltrates the entire cup. When we dwell on God's promise of hope, then his hope infiltrates and fills our lives. As a counter to hopelessness, infused hope is a deep assurance given by the Holy Spirit that not only is God good, but that he's redeeming all things in the lives of believers in creation. Hope comes as a gift to those who abandon themselves to Christ in faith, hope, and love. Infused hope begins with praise, praising, worshiping, thanking God for his promises and for all the blessings that you see in your life and his creation around you. Even if you do not feel like it, even if it's a struggle to find some blessing, infused hope begins simply by thanking God. Thanking God for who he is, verbalizing your trust in his promise that he will do what he says he will do, even if you do not feel or see any light in your darkness. Our emotions follow our thoughts. And as we thank, worship, and praise God, his hope will infuse your mind and your heart. Let us pray. Holy Father, thank you for the gift of hope. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you have promised us that one day we shall have, be part of a new creation. We will see you face to face. And as we wait for that, Lord, we know that you are instilling in our hearts the hope of what you've promised us. Thank you so much, Jesus. Amen.